It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Monday, September 28, 2020. On today's episode, we have two Giller nominees. The Giller Prize is an important prize in Canadian literature. And today we have Emma Donahue presenting her book called The Pull of Stars. And that's followed up by Emily St. John Mandel, who will be presenting her book, The Glass Hotel. Hello, listeners from Côte Saint-Luc. This is Emma Donahue. I'm the author of many novels. Um, if you've heard of me at all, it's probably through my novel Room, which was about a five-year-old boy called Jack growing up in a locked room. Um, but I write a wide variety of things set um, nowadays or way back. I think my range so far has been um, medieval times through to now and um um, let me see, geographically, probably France all the way over to California. I'm Irish, as you can probably tell from the accent, but I've been living in London, Ontario since 1998. So at this point, I would say I am Irish and Canadian and very, very glad to be a part of both those cultures. So the book I'm talking about today is my new novel called The Pull of the Stars. And I'm going to start by explaining what the title means. Um, the novel is set in a Dublin hospital in 1918 during the dreadful Spanish flu or Great Flu, that new strain of influenza which took over the whole world and seems to have killed between 3 and 6% of human population. So the pull of the stars is, is named for the fact that influenza literally means influence. It's a medieval Italian phrase for the influence of the stars on our health. And I loved the idea that you know, in trying to understand the sort of inexplicably random attacks of the flu in the 1918 pandemic, that people might have looked up at the stars and wondered were they just, you know, fated to be the ones who were killed by it rather than the ones who, you know, shrugged it off in a matter of days. Now, you may ask, did I turn to this because of COVID-19? But not at all. Books are not that fast to write. Um, I got this idea on a train between London, Ontario and Toronto in October 2018, because that was the centenary of the pandemic. And I read an article about it in The Economist magazine, and I was just seized. So I immediately started researching the pandemic. And one of the things that jumped out at me was that... Um, a major sort of target of, of the virus was women in late pregnancy or during or just after birth. Um, it tended to, uh, to catch them or be caught by them and it tended to give them terrible complications, including in some cases premature or births that went wrong. So I immediately began to picture a little ward. I thought, where would they put these women who are laboring and who have the flu, so have to be kept away from other laboring women? So I imagined a small ward in a hospital and I thought, I set it in Dublin where I'm from. And I thought if it's so small and the hospital is so understaffed due to the pandemic, who would be in charge of it? So I imagined a nurse who's not that experienced, she's not even 30 yet, um, Julia Power, but she suddenly finds herself in charge of this ward on her own because her um, her sister, meaning her senior sort of boss nurse, is off sick, as are most people. So I was writing about a city just devastated by the pandemic um, and, you know, I finished the novel um, over a year later, handed in my last draft in early March of um, 2020 and suddenly started to pay attention to what was happening happening around me and realised that actually I was going to be living th through a pandemic now too. But really, it hadn't occurred to me as a connection until then because I was so engrossed in the novel. So um, my publishers decided instead of bringing it out in 2021, they would hurry it up and bring it out this summer. And... Um, 
I must say, it is lovely to have the chance to be publishing a novel that's a real tribute to healthcare workers right now, because I think that um, we've never been so acutely aware of how much we depend on their knowledge, their skill, their empathy, um, and their, their stamina. They're willing to keep taking risks when, when the risks are unquantifiable and they know that they could potentially be bringing a virus home to their families as well. So this novel is for all the doctors, nurses, midwives, or hospital orderlies, cleaners, cooks, um, volunteers, staff, and I really tried to capture that range in my novel. So I'm going to read you just a little bit from it. And um, The Pull of the Stars, I think I will start at the very beginning. So Julia Power is uh, going to work um, on a, a typical morning, expect, except that the flu has made everything absolutely untypical. And so it's 19, it's 1918, um, late November in, um, sorry, late October in Dublin in Ireland. Still hours of dark to go when I left the house that morning. I cycled through reeking Dublin streets that were slick with rain. My short green cape kept off the worst, but my coat sleeves were soon wet through. A waft of dung and blood as I passed a lane where livestock were waiting. A boy in a man's coat shouted something rude at me. I pedalled faster, past a motor car creeping along to eke out its petrol. I left my bicycle in the usual alley and clipped the combination lock onto the back wheel. German manufacture, of course. How would I replace it when its mechanism rusted up? I let down the side tapes of my skirt and took my rain-soaked bag out of the basket. I'd have preferred to cycle all the way to the hospital, and it would have brought me there in half the time the tram took, but Matron wouldn't hear of her nurses turning up in a sweat. Emerging onto the street, I nearly walked into a disinfection cart. Its sweet, tarry tang marked the air. I ducked away from those masked men who were spraying the gutters and feeding their hose through the grating of gully after gully. I passed an improvised war shrine, a wooden triptych draped with the Union Jack. There was a chipped Asia Virgin Mary for good measure and a shelf below overflowing with decaying flowers. The names painted on were just a few dozen Irishmen out of the tens of thousands lost so far, out of hundreds of thousands who'd enlisted. I thought of my brother, whom I'd left at home finishing a piece of toast. At the tram stop, the pool of electric light was becoming watery as dawn approached. The lamppost was pasted with advertisements. Depleted and debilitated from living too quickly? Feeling old before one's time? Tomorrow, I would be 30. But I refused, I refused to flinch at the number. 30 meant maturity, a certain stature and force, No. And the suffrage even, now they were extending it to women over 30 who met the property qualifications. Though the prospect of voting felt unreal to me, since the United Kingdom hadn't had a general election in eight years, and wouldn't till this war was over, and God alone knew what state the world would be in by then. The first two trams whizzed by, crammed to bursting. More routes must have been cut this week. When the third tram came, I made myself push onto it. The steps were slippery with carbolic, and my rubber soles could get no purchase. I clung to the stair rail as the tram swayed through the fading darkness and hauled myself upwards. The riders on the balcony section looked soaked through, so I ducked in under the roof, where a long sticker said, Cover up each cough or sneeze. Fools and traitors spread disease. I was cooling fast after my bike ride, starting to shiver. Two men on the knifeboard bench moved a little apart so I could wedge myself between them, bag on my lap. Drizzle slanted in on us all. 
The tram accelerated with a rising whine passing a line of waiting cabs, but their blinkered horses took no notice. I saw a couple arm in arm below us, hurry through a puddle of lamplight, their bluntly pointed masks like the beaks of unfamiliar birds. The conductor inched along the crowded top deck now. His torch, a flat one like a whiskey flask, spilled a wavering radiance over knees and shoes. I gouged the sweaty penny out of my glove and dropped it into his sloshing tin, wondering whether the inch of carbolic would really wash the germs off. He warned me, that'll only bring you to the pillar. So the penny fare's gone up, I asked. Not at all, he said, there'd be ructions, but it doesn't take you as far now. In the old days, I would have smiled at the paradox. So to get to the hospital, I said, it'll be a high penny more on top of your penny, said the conductor. I dug my purse out of my bag and found him the coin. Children carrying suitcases were filing into the train station as we swung past, being sent down the country in hopes they'd be safe. But from what I could gather, the plague was general all over Ireland. The spectre had a dozen names. The Great Flu, Khaki Flu, Blue Flu, Black Flu, the Greep or the Grip. That word always made me think of a heavy hand landing on one's shoulder and gripping it hard. The Malady, some called it euphemistically. Or the war sickness on the assumption that it must somehow be a side effect of four years of slaughter. A poison brewed in the trenches or spread about by all this hurly-burly and milling about across the globe. I counted myself lucky. I was one of those who'd come through practically unscathed. At the start of September, I'd taken to my bed, hurting all over, knowing enough about this brutal flu to be rather in a funk. But I'd found myself back on my feet in a matter of days. Colours appeared a bit silvery to me for a few weeks, as if I were looking through smoked glass. Apart from that, I was only a little lowered in spirits, nothing worth making a fuss about. A delivery boy, matchstick legs in shorts, whizzed past us, raising a peacock's fan of oily water. How slowly this tram was trundling through the sparse traffic, to save electricity, I supposed, or in line with some new bylaw. I'd have been at the hospital already if Matron just let us cycle all the way there. Not that Matron would know if I broke her rule today. For the past three days, she'd been propped up on pillows in a women's fever ward, coughing too hard to speak. But it seemed sneaky to do it behind her back. South of Nelson's pillar, the brakes of the tram ground and squealed and we came to a halt. I looked back at the charred carapace of the post office, one of half a dozen spots where the rebels had holed up for their six-day rising. A pointless and perverse exercise. Hadn't Westminster been on the brink of granting home rule for Ireland before the outbreak of World War had postponed the matter? I had no particular objection to being governed from Dublin rather than London if it could come about by peaceful means, but gunfire in these streets in 16, it hadn't brought home rule an inch closer, had it? Only given most of us reason to hate those few who had shed blood in our names. Farther down the road, where firms such as the bookshop where I used to buy Tim's comics had been raised by British shellfire during that brief rebellion, there was no sign of any rebuilding yet. Some side streets remained barricaded with felled trees and barbed wire. I supposed concrete, tar, asphalt and wood were all unaffordable as long as the war lasted. Delia Garrett, I thought. Eta Noonan. Don't, I told myself. Eileen Devine, the Barrow Woman. Her flu had turned to pneumonia. All yesterday she'd coughed up greenish-red and her temperature was a kite jerking up and down. Stop it, Julia, I told myself. I tried not to dwell on my patients between shifts, since it wasn't as if I could do a thing for them until I was back on the ward. On a fence, specifics of a variety concert with cancelled stamped diagonally across them. 
an advertisement for the All-Ireland Hurling Finals, postponed for the duration, pasted on it. So many shops shuttered now due to staff being laid low by the grip, and offices with blinds drawn down or regretful notices nailed up. Many of the firms that were still open looked deserted to me, on the verge of failing for lack of custom. Dublin was a great mouth holed with missing teeth. A waft of eucalyptus. The man to my left on the tram bench was pressing a soaked handkerchief over his nose and mouth. Some wore it on their scarves or coats these days. I used to like the woody fragrance of eucalyptus before it came to mean fear. Not that I had any reason to particularly shrink from a stranger's sneeze, being immune now to this season's awful strain of flu. There was a certain relief to having had my dose already. A man's explosive cough on the bench behind me. Then another. Hack, hack. A tree being axed with too small a blade. The mass of bodies leaned away. That ambiguous sound could be the start of the flu. Or a convalescence lingering symptom. A cough could signify the harmless common cold or be a nervous tick caught like a yawn just by thinking about it. But at the moment, this whole city was inclined to assume the worst, and no wonder. So that was an excerpt from the very beginning of The Pull of the Stars, which is set in a hospital in Dublin in 1918. And the flu, uh, the Great Flu of 1918, was the first pandemic to be extensively recorded in photography. So this is a novel for which I've drawn on a lot of very evocative photographs. Um, In particular, when when Julia looks out the window of the tram and she sees a couple going by with very pointy, beak-like masks, um, that's directly taken from one of the photographs I used. I wanted to pop that couple directly into my novel. Um, so um, I I'm, I'm hope you enjoyed that and um, I hope you will enjoy my book if you get hold of it through your library or buying it and um, I hope you all stay well in these scary times thanks very much for listening this is Emma Donoghue Hello, my name is Emily St. John Mandel and I'm speaking to you today from New York City but I'm originally from Canada from British Columbia I have a new book that just came out a few weeks ago it's called The Glass Hotel published by HarperCollins in Canada. It's a really hard book to try to describe. My starting point for the book was that I wanted to write about white-collar crime. I was really interested in the idea of writing about people caught up in a massive Ponzi scheme, the perpetrators, the victims, the bystanders. I also wanted to write a ghost story. That was something that I'd been thinking about doing for a while. So the result is The Glass Hotel. It's my fifth novel. It came out a few weeks ago. And I thought I'd read to you for a little bit from the book today. The section I'm going to read contains a woman, uh, sorry, concerns a woman named Vincent. And I see her as being very much at the heart of this book. She's someone who grew up in a very working class environment, but she was a bartender for years. And what that means is that she was quite, you know, she becomes quite comfortable dealing with people from a whole range of economic backgrounds. And in the section I'm going to read, she's been kind of swept off her feet. A very wealthy man came into the bar where she worked on Vancouver Island and has swept her off into this very sort of surreal uh, world of money. And I think I'm going to jump right in. Oh, and uh, here's a detail, which is not really a spoiler. I think you get this on the back of the book. Um, the man who she's, uh, who she's with, Jonathan, is a criminal. He's running a Ponzi scheme, but she doesn't know it. Sanity depends on order. 
Within a month of leaving the Hotel Kayette and arriving in Jonathan Alcatus's absurdly enormous house in the Connecticut suburbs, Vincent had established a routine from which she seldom wavered. She rose at 5 a.m. and spent the day in Manhattan, shopping, wandering through art galleries, walking the streets with her video camera, then made her way back to Grand Central Station and a northbound train, in time to be home and dressed in something beautiful by 6 p.m., which was the earliest Jonathan would conceivably arrive home from the office. She spent the evening with Jonathan, but always found a half hour to go swimming at some point before bed. In the kingdom of money, as she thought of it, there were enormous swaths of time to fill, and she had intimations of danger in letting herself drift, in allowing a day to pass without a schedule or a plan. People clamor to move into Manhattan, Jonathan said, when she asked why they couldn't just live in his pied-à-terre on Columbus Circle, where they stayed sometimes when they had theater tickets. But I like being a little outside of it all. He'd grown up in the suburbs and had always loved the tranquility and the space. I see your point, Vincent said, but the city drew her in. The city was the antidote to the riotous green of her childhood memories. She wanted concrete and clean lines and sharp angles, sky visible only between towers, hard light. Anyway, you wouldn't be happy living in Manhattan, Jonathan said. Think of how much she'd miss the pool. Would she miss the pool? She reflected on the question as she swam. Her relationship with the pool was adversarial. Vincent swam every night to strengthen her will because she was desperately afraid of drowning. Diving into the pool at night. In summer, Vincent drove through the lights of the house, reflected on the surface. In winter, the pool was heated, so she dove into steam. She stayed underwater for as long as possible, testing her endurance. When she finally surfaced, she liked to pretend that the ring on her finger was real and that everything she saw was hers. The house, the garden, the lawn, the pool in which she treaded water. It was an infinity pool which created a disorienting impression that the water disappeared into the lawn or the lawn disappeared into the water. She hated looking at that edge. Her contract with Jonathan, as she understood it, was that she'd be available whenever he wanted her, in and out of the bedroom. She would be elegant and impeccable at all times. You bring such grace to the room, he'd said. And in return for this, she had a credit card whose bills she never saw, a life of beautiful homes and travel. In other words, the opposite of the life she'd lived before. No one actually uses the phrase trophy wife in conversation, but Jonathan was 34 years older than Vincent. She understood what she was. There were adjustments to be made. At first, living in Jonathan Alcatus's house was like those dreams where you find a door in your kitchen that you never noticed before, and then the door leads into a back hallway that opens up into a never-used au pair suite, which opens into an unused nursery, which is down the corridor from the master bedroom suite, which is larger than your entire childhood home. And then later you realize that there's a way of getting from the bedroom to the kitchen without setting foot in either of the two living rooms or the downstairs hall. In her days working in hotels, Vincent had always associated money with privacy. The wealthiest hotel guests have the most space around them, suites instead of rooms, private terraces, access to to executive lounges. But in actuality, the deeper you go into the kingdom of money, the more crowded it gets, people around you in your home all the time, which was why Vincent only swam at night. 
In the daytime, there was the house manager, Gil, who lived with his wife, Anya, in a cottage by the driveway. Anya, who was the cook, supervised three young women who kept the house clean and did laundry and accepted grocery deliveries and such. There was also a chauffeur who had an apartment over the garage and a silent groundskeeper who maintained everything outside of the house. Every time Vincent looked up, someone was nearby, sweeping or dusting or talking on the phone to the plumber or or trimming a hedge. It was a lot of people to contend with, but at night the staff retreated into their private lives, and Vincent could swim in peace without feeling watched from every window. I'm glad you're enjoying the pool, Gil said. The pool design consultant spent so much time on it, and I swear no one ever used it before you got here. She was in the pool when she first met Jonathan's daughter, Claire. It was a cool evening in April, steam rising from the water. She'd known Claire was coming over that evening, but she hadn't expected to surface and find a woman in a suit staring at her through the steam like a goddamned apparition, standing perfectly still with her hands clasped behind her back. Vincent gasped aloud, which in retrospect wasn't endearing. Claire, who had obviously just come from the office, was a very corporate-looking woman in her late twenties. You must be Vincent. She picked up the folded towel that Vincent had left on a lawn chair and extended it in a get-out-of-the-pool kind of way. So Vincent felt she had no choice but to climb the ladder and accept the towel, which was irritating because she'd wanted to swim for longer. You must be Claire, she said. Claire didn't dignify this with a response. Vincent was wearing a fairly modest one-piece swimsuit, but felt extremely naked as she toweled off. Vincent's an unusual name for a girl, Claire said, with a slight emphasis on girl that struck Vincent as uncalled for. I'm not that young, Vincent wanted to tell her, because at 24 she didn't feel young at all. But Claire was possibly dangerous, and Vincent hoped for peace, so she answered in the mildest tone possible. My parents named me after a poet, Edna St. Vincent Millay. Claire's gaze flickered to the ring on Vincent's finger. Well, she said, we can't choose our parents, I suppose. What kind of work do they do? My parents? Yes. They're dead. Claire's face softened a little. I'm sorry to hear that, she said. They stood staring at one another for a beat or two. Then Vincent reached for the bathrobe that she'd left on a deck chair. And Claire said, sounding more resigned than angry now, Did you know you're five years younger than me? We can't choose our ages either, Vincent said. Ha. Not a laugh, just a spoken word. Ha. Well, we're all adults here. Just so you know, Claire said, I I find this situation absurd, but there's no reason we can't be cordial with one another. She turned away and walked back into the house. Vincent's mother had read a lot of poetry, having formerly been a poet herself. When Edna St. Vincent Millay was 19 years old, in 1912, she began writing a poem called Renaissance that Vincent must have read a thousand times in childhood and adolescence. Millay wrote the poem for a competition. The poem didn't win, but it nonetheless carried an electric charge that transported her from the drudgery of New England poverty to Vassar College, from there into the kind of bohemia that she dreamed of all her life. A different kind of poverty, the Greenwich Village circa 1917 variety. Poverty, but with late-night poetry readings and dashing friends. The point is, she raised herself into a new life by sheer force of will, Vincent's mother had said. 
and Vincent wondered even at the time, she would have been about 11, what that statement might suggest about how happy Vincent's mother was about the way her own life had gone. This woman who'd imagined writing poetry in the wilderness, but somehow found herself sunk in the mundane difficulties of raising a child and running a household in the wilderness instead. There's the idea of wilderness, and then there's the unglamorous labor of it. The never-ending grind of securing firewood, bringing in groceries over absurd distances, tending the vegetable garden and maintaining the fences that keep the deer from eating all the vegetables, repairing the generator, remembering to get gas for the generator, composting, running out of water in the summertime, never having enough money because job opportunities in the wilderness are limited, managing the seething resentment of your only child who doesn't understand your love for the wilderness and asks every week why you can't just live in a normal place that isn't wilderness, etc. What Vincent's mother probably wouldn't have imagined, a life, an arrangement, in which Vincent wore a wedding ring but was not actually married. I want you close, Jonathan said at the beginning, but I just don't want to get married again. His wife, Suzanne, had died only three years earlier. They never said her name. But while he didn't want to marry Vincent, he did feel that wedding rings created an impression of stability. In my line of work, he said, managing other people's money, steadiness is everything. If I take you out to dinner with clients, it's better for you to be a beautiful young wife than a beautiful young girlfriend. Does Claire know we're not married? Vincent asked the night Claire appeared by the pool. By the time Vincent had come in and showered, Claire had already left. Vincent found Jonathan alone in the south living room with a glass of red wine and the Financial Times. Only two people in the world know that, he said. You and me. Come here. Vincent came to stand before him in the lamplight. He ran his fingertips down the length of her arm and then turned her around and slowly unzipped her dress. But what kind of man lies to his daughter about being married? There were aspects of the fairy tale that Vincent was careful not to think about too much at the time, and later her memories of those years had an abstracted quality, as if she'd stepped temporarily outside of herself. On another night, they had cocktails at a bar in Midtown with a couple who'd invested millions in Jonathan's fund, Mark and Louise from Colorado. At that point, Vincent had only been in the kingdom of money for three weeks, and the strangeness of her new life was acute. This is Vincent, Jonathan said, his hand on her lower back. It's so lovely to meet you, Vincent said. Mark and Louise were in their 40s or 50s, and after a few more months with Al-Qaeda, she would come to recognize them as typical of a particular Western subspecies of moneyed people. As wealthy as their counterparts in other regions, but prematurely weathered by their skiing obsession. It's so great to meet you, they said, and Louise caught sight of Vincent and Jonathan's rings in the round of handshakes. Oh my goodness, Jonathan, she said, are congratulations in order? Thank you, he said, in such a convincing tone of bashful happiness that for a disorienting moment, Vincent entertained the wild thought that they were somehow actually married. Well, cheers, Mark said, and raised his glass. Congratulations to the both of you. Wonderful news, just wonderful. Can I ask, Louise said, big wedding, small? If we'd made any to-do about it at all, Jonathan said, you'd have been the first names on the guest list. Would you believe, Vincent said, that we actually got married at City Hall? Good Lord, Mark said. There's a certain efficiency to elopement, Jonathan said. 
Weddings are such elaborate affairs. We just didn't want all the hoopla. I had to convince him to take the day off work, Vincent said. He wanted to just go down there on his lunch break. They were laughing, and Jonathan put his arm around her. She could tell he appreciated the improvisation. Lying about being married troubled her conscience, but not enough to make her want to flee. I'm paying a price for this life, she told herself, but the price is reasonable. So that was an excerpt from The Glass Hotel. I hope you're all doing well in these very strange times, and I hope you enjoy the book if you have a chance to read it. Take care. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to our guests, and thank you to you for listening here today. The show is produced by me, Daryl Levine. The telephone broadcasting service and podcast was launched as a way to get content into your home during the pandemic period. As you know, we had to stop our events at the library and at Parks and Recreation. So we hope you're enjoying the podcast as a sort of a virtual way of getting the content to you so you can hear your favorite speakers at home. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Every rating and review helps others to find the show. Have a great day.